The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. Well, welcome back. I'm not sure everybody got the memo that today we had Sunday School and Rector's Forum. I think in the past we have not done that because of Holy Week, and Palm Sunday is, tends to be a somewhat longer service because of the extra bells and whistles. But we decided to do it this week because um, there are so many breaks. Uh, you know that we'll have, if we take a break now, then we come back, we miss for Easter, and then uh, there is the... Um, the tea room that's coming up, and so we miss for about two weeks of tea room, then we come back for a week, and then we miss again for confirmation and so forth. So um, we just decided to go ahead and have the Rector's Forum the same today. So that's why we're here. And for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, we are in a continuing study of John's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, you want to open them up to John chapter 6. And we're going to go ahead and read through verses 41 through 59, and then we'll come back and take a look at them in closer detail. So John chapter 6, beginning at verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. For truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. And I'll just go ahead and conclude with the next verse. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do not take offense at this, or do you not take offense at this? 
You know the context here, I'm sure. We've been studying this sixth chapter of John's Gospel for some time. The context, of course, is that Jesus had performed one of his greatest miracles. Uh, It's the only one of the Lord's miracles we pointed out that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that is the feeding of the multitude in Galilee, the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus took five loaves of bread, two small fish, and by miraculous power, he managed to feed that great multitude. And they not only fed them, but what the disciples discovered was that there were 12 baskets full of the leftovers. Jesus then had ordered his disciples to get into a boat after that event and told them to go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, back to Capernaum, while he went up on the mountain to pray. And then you know that Jesus saw that his disciples were caught in a storm, some sort of windstorm on the Sea of Galilee. Those are not uncharacteristic of the location of the place. And Jesus came to their rescue walking on the water. Well, the next morning, the crowds got up. They'd been satisfied, filled to the brim the night before. But now they come looking for Jesus because, after all, it's breakfast. And uh, he's nowhere to be found. So what do they do? Well, they conclude that somehow, some way, he must have passed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they race to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where, sure enough, they encounter the Lord. And the first question out of their mouth is, how did you get here? Uh, They never would have dreamed that he would have walked across the Sea of Galilee, walked across the water. But Jesus, rather than explaining this to them, simply says to them, I know why you're seeking me. You're looking for me because you were physically satisfied. You are looking for me because you ate your fill in the fish in the loaves. He says, but do not look for that food that does not last, that will not satisfy you for eternity, but long for that food that can feed you forever. And they said, well, give us this food. I said, it's a typical American question. How much does it cost? What do I need to do? What do we need to get this food? And Jesus said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven, that whoever feeds on me shall never be hungry. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And that's where we pick up the narrative today. And when they heard this, we're told that they grumbled. They grumbled. That's a wonderful word, grumble, isn't it? Some translations say murmur. Both of those words are what we call onomatopoeia words. You know what I mean by that? They are words that actually sound like the thing they are describing. Like the word whack or the word thud. Well, this is one of those words. You, you know grumble, 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 murmur, 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 murmur. You know exactly what that's like, and that's what was happening here. There was this, this rumble that goes through the crowd, this, this, this spirit of discontent that runs through the hearts, the minds, and even the voice boxes of these people that are gathered there on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a sign of their discontent. It's also a sign of how fickle human beings are, isn't it? I mean, just a short while before, they were absolutely enthralled with Jesus. To such a degree that we're told they wanted to take him and physically make him their king. 
I mean, after all, he must be the Messiah. He must be the Savior of Israel if he could take five loaves of bread, two small fish, and feed the multitude of over 5,000 people. He must be the king. They were ready to make him a king. Now, such a short time later, here they are grumbling, murmuring against him. Sounds remarkably familiar to what we're going to hear today, doesn't it? The Palm Sunday liturgy begins with the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, where there is pandemonium, where they are tearing the palm branches from the trees and taking off their cloaks and strowing them in the road in front of him as he's making his way into the city, shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Save us, save us now. That's what that word Hosanna means. Save us, save us now. But by the end of the week, those shouts of Hosanna in the highest are going to be jeers of crucify him, crucify him. How quickly we change our attitudes, our minds, our opinions of people. Well, that is exactly what was happening here. You have to ask yourself, what was it that changed their mind? Why were they grumbling? Why were they murmuring against the Lord? Well, it's obvious from the text. The real issue was that Jesus was failing to meet their demands. Their demands, their expectations, whatever it may be, Jesus was not being the kind of king that they expected. And they were disappointed. And as it turns out, they weren't just disappointed, they actually became angry, discontented. I ended this reading with verse 60, which I always think is one of the more ominous texts in the Gospel of John. Because it's a real turning point. You get to verse 60, it says, When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, hard here, the Greek word is skleros. It's the word from which we get the term scleroderma, hardening of the skin. It doesn't mean that this is a word that is hard for us to understand. They understood very well what Jesus was saying. They just didn't like what he was saying. And you skip down to verse 66, if you've got your Bibles open, and you read these words, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. After this, many of them turned back. They'd been following him in droves. They were ready to make him a king. But after this, they turned back and they follow him no more. And this really is a turning point in John's version of the story, in John's narrative. John compresses an awful lot into his 20-some chapters. He leaves out a lot of the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke leave out. Or, or include. And there's a reason for that. We, we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago in the sermon. John makes it very clear he's not including everything that Jesus ever said and did. He never set out to write what we would call an exhaustive account of Jesus' entire life and ministry. You know, there are some people that they set out to write an exhaustive biography of somebody. There is a six-volume commentary, if you will, on the life of George Washington. It was written by Douglas Southall Freeman. He won the Pulitzer Prize for it. He wrote it back in the 1920s and 30s. Six volumes on the life of George Washington. You read through those six volumes and you feel like you have been with George Washington every single minute of his life. John makes it very clear. He said, I'm not set out to do that. In fact, in the 20th chapter of this gospel, he said, Jesus did many other signs which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is making it very clear he's not set out to write everything that he knows about Jesus. So he compresses a great deal of material into his gospel. As a matter of fact, fully half of this gospel of John is given over to just this week that we are beginning. Did you know that? Half of the gospel of John, Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years, he ministered for three years, and half of the gospel is given over to just the last seven days. Tells us how important these days really are. So John compresses a lot of material here, and this is a turning point. At this point, Jesus is going to start moving toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, and as he does, we're going to see those huge crowds begin to fall away. In fact, if you read the New Testament closely, you get the impression that at the time of the crucifixion, there may have been only a handful of people with Jesus. Because we're told that on the day of Pentecost, even after the resurrection, there were only about 120 people there. When the Holy Spirit came down upon the apostles, there was a mass conversion. We're told 3,000 were added to the number, so 3,120 in a day. But it indicates to us that those crowds that have been so huge in Galilee have dissipated. And John says this is part of the reason. Jesus said some things that they found hard to accept. Not hard to understand, but hard to accept. And so they grumbled. They murmured. And already you can hear those shouts of Hosanna in the highest beginning to morph into shouts of crucify him, crucify him. What was it that Jesus said here that was so offensive to them? Well, of course, it was this claim to be the bread of life. And why was that offensive? Well, it was offensive for a couple of reasons. One is that it was offensive because nobody likes it when somebody is always saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. This was a bold and audacious claim that Jesus was making, wasn't it? He's saying, look, I am the bread of heaven. I am the one who has come down from heaven. If I were to go out and, and start claiming to be God, you would think I would, I'd gone around the bend. You, you thought that I'd lost my mind. You might say, well, he's not a bad teacher on a week-to-week know, -week basis. But if he started to say, I'm not only a great teacher, but I'm the son of God, you'd say, oh, boy, we've got a problem. I can tell you what would immediately happen if I climbed into the pulpit this Sunday and claimed to be the Son of God, the vestry would be meeting right after this service. <laughs> so they found it hard to accept what Jesus was saying about himself. Many of these people knew where Jesus came from, after all. He came from where? Nazareth. And the question is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's a backwater village. There's nothing there in Nazareth. We know who this fellow is. We know his mother and his brothers and sisters. And we know his father. His, his father is just Joseph, the, the carpenter. This is hard for us to accept that this man claims to be the bread of heaven. But let me tell you something. It wasn't just what Jesus had to say about himself that they found hard. It's what he had to say about them. It's the implication of his claims that they found equally distressing. Because he was saying that he was the true bread. That if anybody 
would feed on him. They would never go hungry again. He was telling the people that they were hungry. And he reminded them that the problem was not physical hunger. The problem was a spiritual hunger. There was a void missing in their lives. And every single one of us has a void in our lives, whether you realize it or not. And the world hates a vacuum, and we are always trying to fill that void with something. We are always trying to find peace, to find contentment, to find serenity. We're looking for that peace which passes human understanding. And we'll look for it in all sorts of things. We'll look for it in worldly success, success in our careers. We think, if I could just be successful in my career, that will fill the void. And many people become quite successful in their careers and discover that, lo and behold, it doesn't satisfy. Other people will say, well, what I really need is a relationship. If I could just find the right husband or the right wife. And what they end up being is serial monogamous, going from one relationship to the next relationship to the next relationship because, lo and behold, they discover it cannot fill the void. Somebody once said, there is a Christ-shaped void in everyone's life. And he alone can fill it. And that's what Jesus was saying to the people. And who likes to be told that you've got a hole in your life? And that no matter how hard you try, you will never be able to satisfy it. You'll never be able to fill it. You'll never be able to fill that vacuum. But that's what Jesus said. And they found that to be terribly offensive. Furthermore, he went on to say, not only was there a void in their life that he alone could fill, but they were incapable of coming to him in order to have it filled. That they were spiritually dead. That their only hope was that if God the Father would draw them. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out. But Jesus was saying, look, you people are hungry. You're trying to fill the void in your life with all sorts of things. I'm the only one that can satisfy it. And furthermore, you are so blind, you are so spiritually dead, you cannot even come to me unless the Father draws you. Now, when you put it that way, you can begin to understand why they were what? Grumbling murmuring, I don't like this. This is hard for me to hear. This is hard for me to accept. And so what was their response? Well, their response is typical. It's what we often hear from people when a claim like that is made. They simply say, who does this fellow think he is? Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Who does he think he is? Now, what I want us to notice is Jesus' response to this. It would have been very easy for Jesus to perform some great miracle, I suppose, and prove that he really was who he claimed to be. And you'll notice that the people were always saying that sort of thing to Jesus. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Show us. Now, he had just performed one of his greatest miracles of all, as I said, the one that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, and yet they're still demanding more signs. 
Ultimately, Jesus would give them a sign. It's what we're going to celebrate in a week. The people said to him, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are who you claim to be, then prove it. And Jesus said, all right, I will, but I'm not going to prove it by multiplying fish and loaves and feeding you physically for the rest of your days. I'm not an SNS cafeteria. Instead, what is going to happen is I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and your very religious leaders are going to betray me, hand me over to my enemies, and I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be cursed for you and for the sins of the whole world, and three days later I will rise again and prove myself to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that at my name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. That's what I'm going to do, Jesus said. And at this point, of course, what they said was, okay, sure. But I find it interesting, Jesus didn't perform a great miracle. Jesus didn't even get angry with the people. Jesus didn't even walk away, brush the dust off his feet, and leave them to their own fate. What does he do? He simply repeats what he's already said. Let's look at those verses again, verses 41 and following. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is saying, you can only come to me if God the Father is drawing you. That should be a great encouragement to you if you are a Christian today. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I want you to understand that is because God has already been at work in your life. You know, sometimes we get anxious, we flub it up, we do something wrong, and we think to ourselves, have I lost my salvation? Am I going to be rejected on that last day? I want you to understand something. If you're a Christian today... It is because God the Father has been drawing you. This is what theologians call provenient grace. Grace that goes before. It means that God has already taken note of you. He is already at work in your life. And that has to be the way that it is. Why? Because of our spiritual condition. This is one of my favorite passages, but it's so important that we understand the teaching of the New Testament on this subject. Keep your finger there in John and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. I know I've been there many times before, but you know, you think you hammer on a point for so long and then inevitably somebody comes up to you and asks a question and you think to yourself, they haven't heard a word that I've said. Now I know that's nobody in this crowd. There's nobody in here. But in other places where I have been, this is generally the case. <laughs> but take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. And look at the way the Apostle Paul describes our spiritual condition. Now, mind you, he's writing to Christians. All right? He's, he's writing to people who are believers. This is the church in Ephesus. 
As a matter of fact, he left his young protege, Timothy, there to lead this church. Timothy was the bishop of the church in Ephesus. But he reminds the Ephesian Christians of what they once were and what they are now. Here's what they once were, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, just think about what Paul says there. He says a number of very important things. First of all, he says, remember what you once were. You were dead. Spiritually dead. Now, physically alive, but spiritually dead in terms of your relationship with God. And we've talked about this before. How much good can a dead person do? Nothing. You can stand out there in the cemetery and preach until the cows come home. It can be the most moving, powerful, evangelistic sermon that has ever been preached in the history of the world, and nobody's going to respond to the altar call because they're dead. And they're not only dead, but to make matters worse, Paul says they are what? Children of wrath. You know, that is the one thing we do not... I'm just going to say something that is not politically correct. Won't be the first time, won't be the last time. But in our culture, we are taught to believe that we are all children of God. It's this idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Aren't we all God's children? And I want you to understand, so don't anybody come up and say this to me again, all right? I want you to understand we are not all children of God. We are all, every single one of us, by virtue of our inclusion in the human race, creatures of God. And not just creatures of God, but exalted creatures. We are made in his image. We carry what is known as the imago dei. But the Bible is unanimous in teaching that we only become children of God by grace, by adoption, by faith. And to all those who believed, he gave the power to become the children of God. So many people think, well, I, I have to be a child of God. I was raised in the church. I was born an Episcopalian. Somebody once said, well, just because you were born in a car, does that make you a spare tire? <laughs> I mean, let's think about it for a minute. Or people will say, well, my mother and father were Christians. Well, your mother and father were married. Does that automatically mean that you're married? No, it doesn't matter if you've been raised in the church. The question is, have you been adopted by grace into the family of God? And that requires a personal decision. And it's a decision that cannot be made unless God, who is rich in mercy, makes you alive even when you're dead. But as for you, again, Paul in Ephesians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. A child of wrath rather than a child of God. Verse 4, but God. Oh, two wonderful words. Let me tell you, those are perhaps the two most hopeful words in all the New Testament. But 
God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's why Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved. Grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor. And he raised us up with him. You see, it's this language of resurrection. We're dead. We're under judgment. And God makes us alive again. Charles Wesley described this beautifully in that hymn that he wrote in 1738, And Can It Be? We sang it about a week ago as the processional hymn coming in. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So Jesus makes no personal defense when they grumble. He simply restates the position. He's saying, look... I understand why you're confused. I understand why you're murmuring, grumbling. But you need to understand no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But, he says, if the Father draws you, you can come and you can feed on me and you will find satisfaction for your soul. Whatever hunger has been there, whatever gnawing hunger has been in your life, come to me, Jesus said, come to me. And we talked about this. When can we come? You can come at any point. You can come in the morning of your life. That's the best time to come, as these young men have done. You can come in the noon of your life, when you're middle-aged. You can come at the end of your life, like the thief on the cross. Better to come earlier rather than later. People think, well, I'll get my act together eventually. I'll come to Christ after I've had a good time. In the meantime, what are you going to be doing? I'm going to tell you what you're going to be doing in the meantime. You're going to be sinning, and that's going to harden your heart to God. It's only going to make it harder. So come now, but you can come, and if you come, what you will discover is that when you feed on Jesus Christ, everything you've been looking for, everything you've been longing for, everything you've been desiring can indeed be satisfied in him. Everything. This invitation to feed on him, if you think about it, makes practical sense. Why do we eat? We eat because eating is necessary for life. When a person is very sick, the doctor will often come in and ask the nurse, when was the last time that he ate? Or when was the last time that he had any fluids Because we recognize that if you don't eat, if you don't drink, you will die. So eating is necessary for life. Eating is a response to a felt need. C.S. Lewis calls this the argument from desire. He said we have these desires because there is something that can satisfy them. And eating is something that you must do yourself. No force feeding. If you're going to eat, you have to do it yourself. I remember at one point in my life, I had um, become quite sick. As a matter of fact, I was out of work for almost two months. I was quite ill. I had lost an enormous amount of weight. You're going to find this hard to believe, but I weighed about 140 pounds. 
And I'm six foot tall. I was very, very sick. In fact, the doctor didn't tell me until afterward that he didn't know if I was going to make it or not. I'm glad he didn't tell me beforehand. I'm, told, I'm glad he waited. But one of the things that he said to me was, you have to eat. You have to eat. I had to make that conscious decision, that choice to do it. If I was going to survive. Well, there is a sense in which the same is true for you and for me. Feeding on Jesus Christ is necessary for your eternal life. You're never going to find it anywhere else. He said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. There is this longing in all of our hearts for satisfaction, for peace, for contentment, for joy. Well, that's because there is one who can meet that need. Brothers and sisters, this is a personal decision. Nobody can make it for you. Your parents can't make it for you. The fact that you've got members in your family who have been in church for 200 years is not going to save you. The fact that you were confirmed at the hands of the bishop is not going to save you. You must make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. You must recognize that he is the bread who has come down from heaven, that if you feed on him, he will satisfy you until you want no more. And he can do it. Are you hungry this morning? Are you thirsty this morning? And come to Jesus Christ. He's the true bread which has come down from heaven. That if you accept him, invite him into your life as your Lord and Savior, and begin to feed on him daily. What does that mean? Is this a reference to Holy Communion? I didn't get to half of what I wanted to say today. No surprises there. This is not necessarily a reference to Holy Communion. I was going to talk about Holy Communion, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, all those fun theological terms. We didn't make it there today. But this is not just about Holy Communion. This is about feeding on Jesus Christ by faith. And you can begin to do that now. You can be nourished by the Word. You can be nourished in the sacraments. You can be nourished in the liturgy. You can be nourished in all these different ways. But the first thing you must do is you must come to Him. And if you've never made a conscious decision... If you've never invited Christ personally to come into your life and you're feeling pricked in your conscience today or you're wondering, what exactly does that mean? I want you to understand that it's not me speaking to you this morning. It is God himself who is speaking to you. Right now, God the Holy Spirit is drawing you, provenient grace. He's calling you to come to Jesus Christ and give yourself to him and begin to feed on him and I'll tell you there's no better time to do it than the beginning of Holy Week because by the end of the week what you will discover is that what happened to Jesus has happened to you you were once dead dead in your trespasses and in your sins but God who is rich in mercy has made you alive again let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for this gospel of John and for Jesus' words to the people. They grumbled. And this is a hard thing for us to hear. None of us wants to hear that we cannot fill the void in our life. None of us wants to hear that we're dead in our trespasses and in our sins. None of us wants to hear that we're under the wrath of God. But, but, there's this wonderful good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to satisfy our hunger, to quench our thirst, to make us who were dead alive again. If there be any here today who've never fed on Christ, I pray that they would do so today, that they would find in him the feast they have been longing for, that he would satisfy them for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.